Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Most scholars assume, and I think quite rightly, that everything from 11.2 to 14.30 constitutes a single section. Paul is commenting at their request upon their conduct in public worship. Are we doing this correctly? Have we maintained the correct traditions with respect to our times of corporate worship? In the first part of chapter 11, Paul comments on the issue of dress and presentation. He says, you're doing this one right. Hold the line here. Then in the second half of chapter 11, he talks about the Lord's Supper. You're doing that wrong, he says, and he offers appropriate correction. Then in chapter 12, it isn't so much about right or wrong as it is about balance and waiting. They have over-prioritized one gift at the expense of all the others. So Paul talks about diversity and unity, and he makes use of the imagery of the body. The church is the body of Christ, and each member is important and has a critical role to play. Then in chapter 13, we had that digression, or what appeared to be a digression. In effect, Paul was saying, you want to talk about spiritual gifts? Great. I want to talk about spiritual gifts. Let's do that. But first, let me talk to you about love. Love is the more excellent way. In chapter 13, Paul is right-sizing their interest in spiritual gifts. He's saying that spiritual gifts are important, but they are not what is truly distinctive about the Christian faith. Jesus said that they would know that we are his disciples by our love, not by our gifts. So he's taken some air out of the balloon here. He is saying, I want to talk about spiritual gifts as long as we all understand that spiritual gifts are a backseat conversation, not a front seat conversation. Love is more important and love is the key to the distinctively Christian operation of the spiritual gifts within the church. That's the flow here. We pick up the argument at verse 1 of chapter 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Chapter 14 is essentially a dissuasive argument. Paul is trying to dampen their enthusiasm for tongues without disqualifying tongues absolutely. The Pillar New Testament commentary summarizes his approach, saying, In this chapter, Paul will highlight prophecy as a spiritual gift whose exercise would be more naturally promoted by the principle of love than the gift of tongues, since it more clearly serves to edify the church, which is what love seeks. So the principle of love suggests that we prioritize those gifts that benefit and edify the maximum number of people. Speaking in tongues edifies only the individual who is doing it, unless it is interpreted, whereas prophecy serves to encourage and build up the entire gathered church. That's the main idea here. But in order to track with Paul's argument, we need to at least attempt a definition of New Testament prophecy. This issue is somewhat debated, and so it will require a dedicated excursus episode to make any sort of convincing case. But for now, let me propose a very simple and straightforward definition. New Testament prophecy can be understood as speaking to the people of God 
with the help of the Spirit of God, for the general edification of the body. Now, it appears to be somewhat different than Old Testament prophecy. Though, to be fair, Old Testament prophecy is not as monolithic in nature as is sometimes supposed. But regardless, New Testament prophecy does seem to be a little bit different. And that's not a problem. Lots of things are different in the New Testament. That's why we call it the New Testament. So things are different, and things are better, praise the Lord. And the fact that prophecy is going to be one of those different things is signaled in the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Filled with the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter declared, This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So Peter said that the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church would immediately affect the nature, breadth, and universality of the gift of prophecy. What was rare and occasional in the Old Testament church would become general and universal in some sense within the New Testament church. Sons and daughters, young and old, low and high, all shall prophesy, Acts 2.18. That's in the Bible. So I think we are on very safe ground here when we say that the word prophecy in the New Testament comes to mean something more general than it did in the Old Testament. It is something that is characteristic of the believing church as a whole. Filled with the Spirit, we speak to each other in ways that lead to life, health, growth, and renewal Praise the Lord. That's the category of spiritual gift that Paul is elevating in place of the gift of tongues. We'll broaden out this definition as we move through the text. In verse 2, Paul says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. This is a very helpful paragraph in terms of understanding the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy, and in terms of rightly ordering their use and exercise in the church. Paul says, first of all, that the person who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, since no one understands him. So right away, this does seem to suggest that the tongues that were being spoken in Corinth were of a slightly different sort than those that were spoken by the disciples in the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, people did understand. They were amazed. They said, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes? and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, etc., Acts 2, 8-9. So in Acts 2, it seems as though the disciples were speaking in human languages, languages that they had not studied and learned in the normal way. But here in 1 Corinthians, it seems that the gift in view now is something slightly different. It was not known to anyone present. It was known only to God. D.A. Carson helps us put this all together. He says... On balance, then, 
The evidence favors the view that Paul thought the gift of tongues was a gift of real languages, that is, languages that were cognitive, whether of men or of angels, closed quote. So in Acts 2 and here in Corinth, the tongues being spoken were real languages, meaning it wasn't just ecstatic gibberish, it had content, and was intelligible, whether to men or to angels. The main point for Paul, however, is that no matter what type of tongues you're speaking, if there is no one present in the service who can interpret, then it has no value to the group as a whole. Prophecy, on the other hand, is a form of spiritual speech that can benefit the entire group because it is intelligible. It can build people up, it can encourage, and it can console. And by the way, that helps us build our definition of prophecy, doesn't it? According to Paul, prophecy is Holy Spirit-aided, intelligible speech that edifies, encourages, or consoles. That is valuable, of course, to the entire church, Paul says, whereas tongues only benefits the one speaking it. But he wants to clarify, that, that doesn't make it bad necessarily. It just makes it unsuitable for our times of public worship. There's nothing wrong with a gift that only benefits the individual and that ought to be exercised in private. The gift of celibacy is for the individual and has no obvious connection to the corporate gathering of the church for worship, but that doesn't mean that it isn't valuable. This isn't about good or bad. This is about time and place. Tongues, Paul says, can be a blessing to the individual worshiping privately, but unless there is intelligent interpretation, it has no place or purpose within our times of gathered worship. Paul continues to make that point in verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Speaking in tongues, if it is not interpreted, does nothing to move, motivate, or edify the body of Christ. It's just noise, Paul says. And far from building community, it actually makes us aliens and strangers to each other. So, I'm glad you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit. But, he says, I want you to strive for those manifestations that build up the body as a whole. Verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. 
The emphasis here obviously is on intelligibility and mutuality. The problem with tongues is that no one understands, and so no one can join in. There is no collegiality, no corporate dimension. The church becomes just a room full of individuals communing privately with God. But that's not what a church is. In church, we have a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. That's a characteristic of an authentically spirit-led church. In Ephesians 5, 18 to 19, Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Close quote. Do you hear that? There's a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. But speaking in tongues short circuits that entire process. No one can say amen because they haven't got a clue what you're saying. So whether you're singing or praying, do so in a language everyone can understand. That's what church is. Verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Here, Paul says something very interesting. He's chiding them. He says that they have a very immature perspective on tongues. They, they don't even seem to know what it is. And he quotes from Isaiah 28, 11 to 12 which says, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. J. Alec Matir, in his fabulous commentary on Isaiah, explains what this passage means. He says, Come what may, God will speak. But when the simple intelligibility of the word of God is refused, his judgment falls on his professing people in the shape of the unintelligible, closed quote. Are you hearing that? In Isaiah, hearing the word of the Lord through people of strange lips is a sign of judgment. It is God saying, since you won't listen to my word preached straight up, I will speak to you in a language you cannot understand. I will hide the word from you because you never listen anyway. So why in the world, Paul says, would you be eager for that sound in your public gatherings? That would be almost to celebrate judgment on yourselves. Tongues, Paul says, is a sign for unbelievers. It is God telling them that judgment is coming because they despise the word of God. But since the church is made up of people who delight in God's word, then tongues isn't really appropriate there. We need spirit-filled, intelligent speech that convicts, corrects, edifies, and encourages. That will be helpful for the gathered believers. And it will also lead to the conversion of unbelievers. They'll hear the truth. They'll repent. 
and by God's grace escape the judgment that is coming. Verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. It appears from this passage that early church services were a little more interactive than most church services today. Paul is imposing order here on a church that bordered on the chaotic. But it is possible, of course, to err in the other direction. So there's probably something for all of us to learn from this paragraph. Once again, we notice that Paul is not trying to outlaw speaking in tongues. He's just imposing some order and some proportion. Only a few tongue speakers should be permitted, he says, and then only if there is interpretation. If there isn't interpretation, then it has no place in the service at all. We assume from what Paul says here that when the church gathered, he wanted to see people gifted in various word ministries sharing their gifts in some sort of ordered fashion for the edification of the entire body. There was to be no interrupting. There was to be no ecstasy. We're not pagans rolling around on the carpet. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So nobody gets to say, the spirit is upon me. I need to speak. No, no, no. You can sit down and wait your turn. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. We'll pick up the narrative at verse 33b, the midway point there. It, the, the verse numbers are not inspired, and the phrase, as in all the churches of the saints, seems to go better with what follows than what precedes, and so it's generally organized that way now in most translations. Paul says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, this passage sounds rather jarring to us, particularly in the modern age. In fact, for some, this is where their commitment to the authority of God's word is most severely tested. Why in the world would the Apostle Paul say something like this? Well, first of all, we need to understand what it is that Paul is saying. He doesn't seem to be forbidding women to speak in church outright. After all, earlier in this discussion, earlier in this section of the letter, in chapter 11, he assumes that women are praying and prophesying in church, provided they do not appear to be usurping their husband's authority. So what is Paul communicating here? Andreas and Margaret Kostenberger are very helpful here. They say, the situation that best fits the adjective shameful is one in which wives defy convention by publicly embarrassing their husbands through their speaking. Specifically, in the context, it is likely that Paul imagines a wife joining in the process of weighing what is being said during the congregational scrutiny of prophecy, as per 14.29. By doing so, they compromise their husband's authority over them and appear to undermine the good order of the household, close quote. 
D.A. Carson takes a similar approach. He says, women, of course, may participate in such prophesying. They may not participate in the oral weighing of such prophecies. In that connection, they are not allowed to speak, closed quote. So putting all that together, Paul seems to be envisioning a service wherein a variety of things might be said by a variety of people, including women. At some point, however, there is official discernment, as per verse 29. Let the others weigh what is said. This would be done by the elders in most interpretations, although some scholars argue for the whole adult male membership. But regardless, during this discernment process, the women are to stand down. They are not to make authoritative declarations as to any prophecies that may or may not have been out of bounds. That would be shameful. That would be a contradiction of the created order as per Paul's concern in chapter 11, verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Commentators debate here as to whether Paul is rebuking the women at Corinth or the church as a whole. On balance, it seems preferable to understand him as rebuking the church. He is asserting his authority over the church as a whole. He's saying, are you the source of the apostolic gospel or am I? Are, are you the only church in the world or are there many churches? Do you get to make your own rules or do we all need to be in submission to the same general principles? That seems to be the gist of it. Now, if we're correct in assuming that there were some women in Corinth who were arguing for a total relaxation of all distinctions with respect to gender, as we supposed in chapter 11, then as Paul is rebuking the church as a whole, he is, of course, also speaking specifically to these women. We aren't going to introduce strange changes here in Corinth as if this was the only church on planet Earth. No, of course not. It isn't the whims of a few that will dictate this issue. It is my authority as an apostle. He says that in verse 38. Participation will be within apostolic boundaries or it will not be permitted. Period. Having thus set things in order, Paul delivers the bottom line in verses 39 to 40. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Prioritize prophecy and permit speaking in tongues, provided there is interpretation. That is a wise and pastoral approach to these potentially divisive matters. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust.
If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 